Thanks for joining us at the Montrose Church Podcast. For more information, please visit us at montrosechurch.org. Have a great day. about you, but I would really be excited if God would make everything about my life peaceful and calm. Amen. I would love it if he would, uh, you know, just take away any insecurities or anxiety that I have. I think it'd be really a great, great thing. And then I start to think about the, the truth about God and who he is. And I, uh, I came across this question the other day in an article, what if anxiety is our optimal state? Now, don't just hang with me for a minute. What if anxiety is our optimal state? I mean, I don't know about you, but I'm trying to get rid of anxiety. I, I'd like to not have any. I'd like to have security and peace and comfort. I'd like for there to be very few questions on the horizon. Anybody else like that? So I keep, and generally that's what I pray about. God, fix this, take care of it, take it away, solve it. And it seems to me that uh, what's going on in our culture and our world, and we've kind of been on this journey through this year of talking about social sciences and psychology and how it's marrying up with our faith. And, and, and one of the things that's going on in the world of social sciences right now is psychologists, get this, they are doing studies about what it means to be truly happy. And they're finding in these studies that, that being happy, the ultimate state of happiness in a human being is always accompanied by some anxiety. That, in fact, anxiety is kind of your friend. And now you understand that's a continuum. You understand what a continuum is. Some anxiety might be good. Too much is not good at all. Amen? (laughs) But these studies are finding that that the goal of life is not... If you get rid of all of the anxiety, then, then it creates a problem. There's a study that was recently in Psychology Today. And this is what it says. Truly happy people seem to have an intuitive grasp of the fact that sustained happiness is not just about doing things that you like. It also requires growth. It requires adventuring beyond the boundaries of your comfort zone. Happy people are simply put curious about future possibilities. In 2007, there was a study that was done in which participants gauged and monitored their daily activities and they tried to analyze how they felt about what they were doing. Over the course of 21 days, those who frequently felt curious or drawn into activities that created anxiety for them also experienced the highest level of satisfaction in their lives. That meant they also participated in the highest number of happiness-producing activities, like expressing gratitude or sharing good words with others around them. Yet, curiously, that pulsing, eager state of not knowing is fundamentally a state of anxiety. Curiosity, it seems, is largely about exploration, often at the price of momentary happiness. Curious people generally accept the notion that they will be uncomfortable and they will be vulnerable, but it is worth it along the way. It's the most direct route to becoming stronger and becoming wiser. And while there are lower lows, there are also higher highs that go with people who are willing to engage in curiosity and the anxiety that goes with it. Now, I don't know about you, but that's incredibly convicting to me because I am risk averse. 
Anybody else? I mean, I am not a risk taker. I do not like to venture off into things in which the status quo or the peace and quiet might be shattered. I, I want everything to be locked down, solid. You know, when we do the budgets at the church, I like for the budgets to come in way under what we're going to raise. That's my, that's my optimum state, that there will be plenty. And I wonder how God sees that. When somebody comes along and says, I, I think we ought to try this, I think we ought to do this, I, I will always uh, up front say, well, let's think about it. But inside I'll be going, no, 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 let's don't do it, no. There's enough. There's too much. Let's slow down. Let's back up. Let's simplify. Let's unload. Let's offload. Anybody else like that? And then I start to think about this reality. Matthew 16 becomes this turning point in the gospel of Matthew, but in the story of Jesus and the narrative that's flowing. And so what's going on is, is Jesus in the flow, he's, he's taking the disciples away, as far away from Jerusalem as they can get. They've gone to a place called Caesarea Philippi. And Jesus has now gathered them around him, and he said to them, who do people say that I am? And they say, some say Elijah, some say Moses, some say one of the prophets come back to life. And he says to them, but who do you say that I am? And Peter says, you are the Christ. That's a title. You are, you are the messianic figure. You are the Christ, the son of the living God. Blessed are you, Peter, for man did not reveal this to you, but my Father in heaven. And upon this rock I will build... My church, and the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. And I don't know about you, but when I hear that, I'm like, wow. This is an epiphany moment. The angels sing here. I mean, you know, there should be a sound of singing. There should be some sort of, you know, glow. Jesus' face lights up. There's that halo that you see in all the paintings. You know, it's there. You know the halo that you see in all the paintings? It's a metaphor in the paintings. It's not real. It just means he's saintly. You guys know this? So it just wasn't funny is what you're telling me. <laughs> All right. All right. I see where we are. And so you would expect this moment because in, in, an, in an essence, you've got a whole group of people who have left their entire lives to follow after this person named Jesus, betting and hoping that he was the answer, leaving behind everything else to go in pursuit of this person that they believe to be at least a great teacher and leader who will carry them into places of status and wealth and security and comfort. That is their belief. They don't get over it for a long time. They continue to believe it. On the night that Jesus shares with them the Last Supper and is busy explaining to them, I'm about to be betrayed, I'm about to go to the cross, they say, so is this the time that you're going to restore the kingdom of Israel? Is this the time we get our inheritance? <laughs> Have I been with you so long? And still you do not understand. And so in this moment, you would expect this sort of the end of the quest, the end of the questioning, this, this moment when it's all come together and the answers have been revealed. I mean, here it is. Thou art the Christ, the Son. Blessed are you. Man did not reveal this to you, my Father in heaven. Oh, I mean, it would be beautiful. But do you know what happens next? Immediately, Jesus begins to say to them, you should read chapter 16. Immediately, Jesus begins to say to them and explain to them that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer at the hand of the chief priests and the elders and be crucified and on the third day be raised from the dead. And Peter stood before him and said, never, we will never allow that to happen to you. 
And Jesus, who has just lauded Peter, says, Get behind me, Satan, for you do not have in mind the things of God. You have in mind the things of man. Now, now if that's not enough, that's pretty good writing, isn't it? I mean, that's pretty good of saying, we thought we found the answer. We thought we were there. We thought it was all peace and quiet. We thought it was all going to come together. We had been pursuing and hoping and waiting and waiting for that moment when it all clicked and everything and it all worked and it all fixed. And then we were like, okay, great. Let's go. Let's go to the beach. Let's lay down. Let's rest. And immediately Jesus says, okay, that's not what it's about. That's having things in mind about man. But what I'm telling you is this is where we're going. Anybody know where this thing goes next? Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. You heard this speech before, this piece of the teaching? (laughs) Because whoever saves their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for my sake will find it. And in this moment, there's there's this reality that Jesus is speaking into their lives. And this is what he's saying. Listen. The goal is not to get you all comfortable and tucked in and warm and cozy. The the goal is for you to live wide open, risking everything for the kingdom of God, allowing yourself in every context. Today we're talking about faith promise. Well, we're kind of talking about it. I mean, what, what an amazing opportunity and privilege God has engineered for us as a congregation. I, I was in an environment a few months ago uh, in Swaziland, Eswatini, and uh, we were out visiting uh, some, a, a home, a family, and having the privilege to hand a person food who doesn't have anything to eat, that you guys raised money on a day like this and through the year that bought that food, and I don't know, it just seems to me what an amazing thing that, that what we do here in this place under these adverse conditions of you know, non-air conditioning is turned into food on the other side of the world for a single woman who lives by herself and is suffering an illness and needs food to eat. It just seems fantastic to me that we participate in this, and that's faith promise, and, and it does a lot of things locally and all that, and, and that, but I don't just want to talk about that. I want to talk about what's happening to you, what God has in mind for you, What are you risking for the kingdom of God? It seems to me that so often the church is into a place where what we really want is to be comforted. What we really want is God to fix us up. What we really want God is to to allow us to sort of rest. But God is saying, listen, I want you to stay a little off balance. I don't want you to get too safe. I don't want you to get too secure. I don't want it to get too predictable. What if God is about to? What if God is ready to? What if God wants to? What if God has in mind for you, for your journey, for your family, for your career, for your future, but, but because we're so often risk-averse and we're seeking something that's safe and comfortable and keeps us warm and cozy, that we're unwilling to jump in and risk something for God's work. Maybe it's God's work in Faith Promise. Maybe it's God's work at Montrose Church. Maybe it's God's work in your career. Maybe it's God's work in your inner world and your emotions and thoughts. But we're invited into this place. Elijah is a person whose life is full of risks. And when you stop and you you think about the story of Elijah and the things that are unfolding, it's very significant. So we left Elijah last week, and he had gone to King Ahab, and I gave you the whole history lesson last week, and God bless you, you don't have to hear it again. But there had been a famine, and and we're told then as... uh, 
as Elijah prepares himself and as he's praying and he's waiting for God to speak, that after three years, God finally speaks and says, listen, I'm ready to to do the next thing. I'm ready for the next step. And last week we spent time in 1 Kings 17, and today we're in in chapter 18. And so, so what's going on is that the word of the Lord, after three years, the word of the Lord comes to Elijah. And he says, go to Ahab and tell him that I am about to send rain. I love this. I don't know about you, but I've always thought it'd be awesome just because I'm a pastor. If, you know, you had those prophetic things you could do, like, you know, you could say stuff and it would come true. I mean, I'll tell you, you know, you hit a few of those things and people start showing up on the weekends. But I've always kind of been suspicious that that's not really how it works, that it really works more like this, that God says to Elijah, okay, after three years, now I want you to go. Like Elijah wasn't making it up. God was telling him. And so he decides he's going to go to Ahab and he's going to say to him, listen, the famine's about to come to an end. You need to pull it together. And so as he goes, he comes across a servant of the king and his name is Obadiah. And he comes to Obadiah and he says, listen, Obadiah, I want you to go tell King Ahab that that God is moving and it's time for the famine to end and I need to talk face to face with Ahab. And Obadiah says, whoa, I'm not sure what you're trying to pull me into, but listen, I I want no part of it. I don't really want any part of it because this wasn't going to happen. You're this high mighty prophet of God and and I'm going to go tell Ahab, listen, and just so you know, he says, Ahab has looked everywhere for you. He has looked everywhere for you. He, he, there, there is, he has gone beyond the borders of Israel. He has, asked, uh, he has caused and made other kings and queens promise that they don't know you and haven't seen you. You don't understand. He's obsessed with you. He's a little out of his mind. And, and, and you know, I, I'm one of his servants. I work in the palace. I work directly with King Ahab. In fact, I'm on a mission right now that King Ahab gave me. Maybe, you, maybe you've heard of it. See, the deal is there's been a famine for three years, and we can't feed the livestock. And so just, just earlier today, Ahab said to me, listen, you go east, and I'll go west, and I want you to examine every hillside and every valley and see if you can find a little bit of water and a little bit of grass, and we'll take the livestock so we don't have to kill them. So that's what I'm doing out here. I'm out here wandering around. I'm looking for a little gla- grass and a little water so Ahab can feed his livestock. And Elijah says, oh, okay, why don't you go tell Ahab to meet me? And he says, well, this is what, haven't I been a good guy? Haven't I been a God-fearer? Haven't I always tried to do the right thing? Do you realize, he says, that, that, that I, I, myself, out of the table of Ahab, that I have taken a hundred prophets of God, and I've hidden them away in caves, 50 in one cave and 50 in another. Do you realize that every day I sneak food out of the palace to feed those hundred prophets of God? Do you see how loyal I've been? Do you see all the good things? Do you see all the risks I've taken for the kingdom of God? And now you're asking me to go tell Ahab? And Elijah says, what is your deal? What's the problem? And he says, just as sure as I go and tell Ahab that you're here, the, the Holy Spirit's going to sweep you away and take you to a safe place. And you're not going to be here when I get back. And then you know what's going to happen? He's going to kill me. And while I don't mind taking some risks, I'm in no mood to take that risk. And Elijah says, God has appointed a time for me to meet. Go tell Ahab. And so Obadiah finally goes and he gets Ahab. And Ahab and Elijah come together. And Ahab sees Elijah approaching and he says, there you are. 
you troubler of Israel. And Elijah says, it's not me that's causing trouble. It's you and your family who have become disobedient to God and have indulged this nation and other things. And I am calling you to account. I am calling you back to God. I invite you to a showdown. You bring the 450 prophets of Baal who eat at the table of Jezebel, and we will pray before God for direction about the future. I'll tell you, it's a risky story. It's a story that has Elijah showing and presenting at the risk level, but Obadiah involved in it. And I just observed five things that I think matter to us this morning about this. Everybody doing okay? Is it too hot? Should we call attention to the heat? Should we just ignore it? Okay. Only about 45 more minutes of sermon to go. And... Aren't you glad we're doing it this weekend and not last weekend? What was it, like 142 degrees last weekend? Number one, kingdom risk is always God-led. It's always God-led. God came to Elijah and said, it is time to take the next step. Elijah didn't get up one day and said, you know what? I'm going to dare great things for God because I want God to do great things. So I'm just going to come up with something and I'm just going to do something that will make it all come together. No. Kingdom risk is always God-led. When is the last time that you, you looked at your life and your journey and your heart and your spirit and you said, God, what am I risking in here? What do you desire for me to risk? Is, is there some practice? Is there some way of praying? Is there some be, way of being engaged in your word? Is there some way of being engaged in ministry and mission? Is there some way of engaging in relationship that I haven't explored? Have I come to this place where what I really want you to do is insulate me from all of that? I want to pull back from it. And don't you think God is honored to say, let me, let me direct your path. Seek first the kingdom of God and my righteousness. I, I'm not here to make you comfortable. If you want to be my disciple, you must deny yourself and take up your cross and follow me. There will be risk in this. There's going to be something in it that makes you a little uncomfortable, a little uneasy. It breaks you out of your pattern. I, I don't want to move too quickly on that. I don't like being broken out of my pattern. I mean, I don't like being broken out of my pattern in the smallest of ways. Is that just me? I like to eat what I like to eat. I like to sleep what I like to sleep. I like to watch what I like to watch. I don't like being made uncomfortable. And yet, God, I believe, is desiring to break in. I de he desires us to move. He desires something to be different. And I, and I keep praying, God, make it different, make it different, do whatever you want. I don't care, just fix it. And he keeps saying, no, that's not how it works. I'm going to tap you on the shoulder, and I'm going to invite you into a place of risk. I'm going to ask you to change something, to do something differently, to use your brain differently, to use your words differently, to do your time differently. I'm inviting you, but risk is always God-led. And I'm going to tell you something. When you hang out at the church for a long, long time, you can feel the difference between a God-led kind of risk and an ego-led kind of risk. Amen? And kingdom risk, the kind that makes us uncomfortable but also hopeful, that creates in us a kind of anxiety but also a curiosity where we begin to live in the space in which He is able to do exceedingly, 
abundantly more than we could ever ask or even imagine. That kind of kingdom risk is God-led. Number two, kingdom risk is value-driven. It's value-driven. So Obadiah is risking great things. I mean, how many of you knew the name Obadiah and you knew his story before this moment right now? It's not, not an overwhelming majority. And yet, what a fantastic story. I mean, here's a guy that works over at the palace for the most infamous king and queen of Israel ever, King Ahab and Queen Jezebel. It is just one of those little stories where you go, even when it looks like it's all going wrong, something's going right. <laughs> even when it looks like it's a big mess, there's some people that are faithfully serving And over there at the palace of King Ahab and Queen Jezebel is a servant named Obadiah. And what is Obadiah doing? He is just quietly living out his values in the kingdom. He's just saying, you know what, I'm a God-fearer, and and here are prophets that belong to God, and I'm going to do my very best to intervene and to intercede in their lives, and I'm going to make a difference. And I'm not going to live out of something that just came to me. I'm not going to ask for the latest thing that God is doing. I'm simply going to live faithfully in the values that he's giving me. I'm going to continue to live out these values, not just on Sunday when I go to church, not just faith promise when I'm asked to give a little extra for somebody else. I'm going to live out the values of the kingdom on Monday and Tuesday and Wednesday and Thursday and Friday and Saturday. I'm going to let the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be exemplified, be organized around God's kingdom and the values that he espouses. And I'm going to live these values all the time. When I open my mouth to speak, the words that come out are going to be kingdom value words. They're not going to be other value words. I'm not taking a day off. I'm not taking a minute off. I'm not looking somewhere else. Kingdom risk is value-driven. It's what I deeply believe. It's what I deeply desire. It's who I really, really am at the core of my life. And I can't fix everything... I can't fix everything in the world that makes me upset, but I can, in the midst of it, risk something for the kingdom of God based on the values he's given me. It's God-given. It's, it's value-driven. Number three, kingdom risk isn't foolish. It isn't foolish. Obadiah is out on an errand of King Ahab as the story unfolds. He's out there looking for water and grass for the livestock of the king. It's just one of those things where he may be courageous and he may be risking things and he may be living out his values, but he's not dumb. He's not foolish. He hasn't become militant and angry and mean. He's still doing his very best to live in a world in a way in which he gets along and he does what needs to get done and he's respectful of those who lead him and he's in a way of understanding this process that that sets him up to risk the best things in the kingdom and to preserve the things that God isn't ready to change yet. Amen? Because I don't know about you, but I don't want to live like that. I want God to fix some big things, and then I'll be happy to do the little things. But in this kingdom in which we live, you and I are asked to do the little things until such time as God chooses to change the big things. And the big things are not crippling us from doing the God-called, value-driven 
things that you and I are invited to do. We don't need to be foolish. We don't need to be militant. We don't need to be angry. We don't need to be people who exude a terrible attitude towards the culture and the world. Amen? Fascinates me. I love going to Africa. It's a, it's a, it's a life-changing kind of experience, but much more than that. I, it, it is at this point such great friendships and relationships that it's, like, it's kind of like uh, a family reunion now. You know, you get off the plane and you're immediately embraced by people that you've come to just love and respect in so many ways. And when we're there, you know, it's very easy for us to say, hey, listen, here's some things that you can't say. For example, I don't know if you know this, but Eswatini is the, the last true monarchy in the world. Everybody know that? Eswatini is the last true monarchy in the world. So that means that the king can go, no, we're not doing that anymore. And then they don't do it anymore. So like just, a, just about two years ago, the king said, you know what? I don't like that we're called Swaziland. Swaziland is a colonial name that the British gave us, and I don't like it. So I'm going to change it. We're going to, this, this area geographically used to be called the Kingdom of Eswatini. So if, you know what we're going to do? We're going to change the name of our country. We're going to call it the Kingdom of Eswatini from now on. And you know what all the people said? That's going to be terribly inconvenient. That's going to cost us, but we're going to have to change the letterhead. We're going to have to change the street signs. We just built a brand new airport. What is, the, what is the airport, the brand new airport called? Swaziland International Airport. We've got to change everything. And the king said, let's do it. I want to. Last true monarchy in the world. So when you go there, somebody's going to tell you this, usually us in the orientation, don't talk bad about the king or any of his wives. You understand where I'm coming from? <laughs> And, and we have yet to have somebody on our team go, no, I'm going to, I'm going to, I am, I am going after the king and he should not have that many wives. And I'm going to speak up about it because it is my job. It is my God-given. It's my risk-taking. My value-driven, God-given risk-taking. Don't be foolish. And how often we slide into that culture and we just say what we need to say and do what we need to do and we do the work God's called us to do. And then how hard we sometimes find it to live like that in our own culture. God is calling us to risk something for the kingdom of God. But it's God called and it's value driven. And it is never, ever foolish. Number four, kingdom risk is seldom popular. I don't know about you, but I wish that the whole idea of faith and religion was better thought of in our culture, in our world. Amen? And I do recognize this. One of the reasons it's not is because we have not handled well our responsibility as those who say we believe in a loving God. Amen? I mean, we've got to own that. But that said, it is never, ever popular to live in deep time. By that I mean... You and I are called to a belief system that says, I'm not living for today. I, I'm, not just, I'm not just in it for my job and my, you know, my retirement and my kids and my car. I'm not in it for any of that stuff. That's a part of my life. That's a part of what's going on. But here's what I'm in it for. 
I'm a kingdom person, and I'm going to be a kingdom person for eternity, and I'm living in deep time, and the values that I espouse, they don't come and go. They might get trendy in the culture. They might swing over here for a while, and, and we're a little more progressive, and we think, you know, and then it might swing way over here, and we kind of get fundamentalist, and you know, but I, but I don't do that stuff. I don't really care where the culture's going. The culture's not defining me. I don't live in this moment in time. I, I, don't, I tell you, what, what year is it now? 2019, is that right? I got some decades on me. You understand what I'm saying? I, I, I was born in 1960. I grew up as a child in the 1960s. I mean... Peace, peace, baby. <laughs> Dudes need to chill. Just take it easy. It's about love, man. This is the age of Aquarius. I don't know what's happening to you people. And then the 70s came. Look at this, man. This is my throwback to big bells. This is, this is, as, big, this is as big as you can buy. But when I was in high school, I had elephant bells. They covered my entire shoe. I mean, you had to swing those babies around when you walked. And I want to tell you something. In the 70s, I had hair. I mean, I don't know whatever happened to me, but my hair grows like a Chia pet. So I was never able to achieve that long hair. My hair grows like a shrub. It just gets thicker and thicker, you know. I look like I'm wearing a helmet when I have long hair. And there's, as you think about the decades and the trends and the things that have gone on in our culture, listen, that's not, that's just a passage of time. That's not who we are. Who we are are kingdom people. You can be a kingdom person in the 1960s. You can be a kingdom person in the 70s and the 80s and the 90s in the new millennium. We can be kingdom people, and we are. And sometimes we live in times when that is not popular. Listen, risk kingdom life and jump in anyway, even if it's not popular. And so you and I, you, in your own life, in your own journey, in your own home, in your own family, you're invited to risk. Number five, and this is the last one. Can I, can I just have an amen for the last one? Amen. Kingdom risk is about making things right. Obadiah and Elijah are in this whole process for one reason. To take an injustice and something that is wrong and broken and dysfunctional and make it right. And I want to tell you something. That's what we're here for. We're here at every layer of our existence, not only as individuals, but as a church congregation. We are here to make wrong things right. Why do we have community partners? Because we believe they are helping to make wrong things right. That, that we partner with somebody like Elizabeth House because there are women with very young children are in the middle of a pregnancy who are in the middle of an abusive situation and they need a place to go. They need a place of rescue. And who's going to do that work? Well, people like Elizabeth House are doing that work. 
opening up a place for residents to come in and be housed for six months, nine months, a year, two years, until these women can get on their feet and can live on their own, and now acquiring a second house that allow, allows for transitional housing. Once the crisis is over, let's move over to this house and we'll transition you back in the mainstream. Listen, that is heroic work, and it is making something wrong right. And then in some small way, we get to be a little part of it. Saving Innocence, the STARS program, it, 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 the list can go on and on. You, you saw when you looked at those slides, you saw people making grilled cheese sandwiches. How many of you know what those grilled cheese sandwiches are? Just a few. Because <laughs> every Wednesday, out of this high school, just on the other block, over by First Baptist, <laughs> there's a thing called Lunch Munch. And a whole bunch of volunteers show up and make grilled cheese sandwiches for high school kids who walk over and have their lunch in the middle of a bunch of youth people who care about them and love them and connect with them and just create friendship with them. That's all. It's not a devotional. There's not a prayer time. They're just loving, caring people who come every single week. They've been doing it for years and years. And it's helping change something. It's a God-called kind of risk that's about making wrong things right. 150,000 meals served to children in a little village called Induma. We feed in one village. We were tasked with that village because 80% of the children are orphaned by AIDS and HIV. The other 20% are at risk to be orphaned. A child development center in Eswatini and our partnership feeds 50 children a day. Induma feeds 130 children a day. At Induma, we generally, in a child development center, will feed children who are five and under, preschool children. At Induma, we, choose, we feed children from preschool all the way through high school. It's up in the mountains. It's a beautiful little village. We are here to make wrong things right. And we can't change everything, but we can change something. We can change something. And so my question to you this morning is, what are you risking? Now, you think I'm going to talk about money in a minute, and you're going to fill out a card in a minute, and you're going to do the filling out of the card, but I'm not going to talk about money. I want to talk about something much bigger than that. What are you risking for the kingdom? What are you risking in your thought pattern? What are you risking in your emotions? What are you risking in your relationships? I want you to jump in. I want you to begin to pray, God, what is the God-led risk you are asking me to take, me personally in my life, in my journey? Maybe that involves some faith promise. I hope so. God bless you. 1.1 million raised over the last four years to be given away to other places. I think that's honoring to God, don't you? I do. And I think we should stay at it. We should never come to believe that the ministry of the kingdom happens inside the walls of our church. We just become the engine that hopefully drives all kinds of good things going on in the kingdom of God. But what does God want out of you? What does he want out of your heart, your mind, your relationship, the place where you work, the place where you go to school, the way you function? What God called peace of risk is he asking you to take? What is he asking you to change? All of us want this. You are the Christ, the son of the living God. Blessed are you, for man did not reveal this to you, but my Father in heaven. But very few of us want to push to the next part. We want to stay right there in that glow. We want to stay right there in that moment. Questions answered, everything solved, everything come together. But God says, listen, if you want to be my disciple, you must deny yourself and take up your cross and follow me. Because whoever saves their life will lose it. 
And whoever loses their life for my sake will find it. I'm going to ask the band to come back. We're going to close this service together, this great together Sunday. Thank you. Thank you for coming out here. Thank you for getting out. You risk so much to be here. <laughs> I do appreciate it. I, I, I mean it. It matters that we get to see each other. It matters that we get to be together in one place. It, it matters that you get to look across and go, you know, as much as we enjoy the intimacy of our little space, God has graced us and given us huge responsibility together. And I think it matters that we get to look. So in a moment, we're going to sing together. And you have a card. And I'm going to ask you to do a couple things for me. It, 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 you know, whatever you decide. You know, there's a whole scale. We, I love that scale. It says, if you give $1 every week for the year ahead, by the end of the week, you'll have given $52. That's the kind of information we need. Take your time. Maybe you've already been a part of Faith Promise and you're going to just keep doing what you're doing. All we're asking you to do is let us know. You're going to fill out the bottom of that card. You're going to tear it off. You're going to drop it to some of our folks who are going to gather them outside after this is over. Don't take them home. Here's our experience. If you take them home, they will never see the light of day. You'll never be contacted. Nobody's ever going to come to you and say, hey, you made a pledge and you're not paying it. No, we don't do that. That's not what we're doing. We're just trying to figure out how we're budgeting with all of our partners because now we have so many. In about two weeks, one of our lead team members is on their way back to Eswatini. We're committing to a massive project. It's going to be exciting. I've got some things to tell you about it when the time comes, but it's not there yet. We're trying to figure out how to budget for that. So we're just asking you, Whatever God is inviting you to do, this is our time. We commit that. We do it every year at this time. You're going to drop those in. But more than that, what is God asking of you? What does he want out of your heart, mind, spirit, life, relationships, work? There is risk to the kingdom. of Optimum life in the kingdom has risk. And he's invited us. Whoever saves their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for my sake will find it. Pray with me. God, as we come to the close of this time together and we celebrate that you have blessed us and then invited us to bless others. We're so thankful for partners like Tierra del Sol who so heroically serve, who equip adults with special needs and provide places for them to work and serve in this beautiful art program and we want to be a part of it. We're thankful for all of our community partners and how they work and share and, and whether it's Central City and downtown Los Angeles dealing and focusing on this incredible outbreak of homelessness and the issues and difficulties that go with it, our STARS program, educating and tutoring kids or feeding people and Africa on the other side of the world, we're thankful to be a part. So search our hearts. Invite us to be courageous people who live in the deep time of the kingdom, who live out its values, who listens for God's voice, who do not act foolishly but responsibly. And may we right the wrongs together. 
lead us in these moments as we hear these words and you deal with us in these moments together. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for joining us at the Montrose Church Podcast. For more information, please visit us at www.montrosechurch.org. Have a great day.